Hey everyone, and welcome to At The Letters for October the 18th, 2022. At The Letters, of course, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. And we are joined today by Shai Davidi of Sportsnet uh, to talk some Toronto Blue Jays and make sense of where things are at for this team. Shai, welcome. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you, Ben? Doing well. It's kind of an abrupt shift to go from the intensity of the playoffs and everything that goes along with that, um, and even the regular season, a, a long season, to then, oh, it's it's just over. Um, <laughs> so it's been an abrupt shift. I found myself with you know a very different schedule, a bit more time on my hands. I imagine things might be similar for you. It's certainly... Having playoff baseball back was so fun. You know, it would have been a lot of fun to see that continue for a little while, but it's been a very different week uh, this past week than I probably would have expected. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you maybe you felt quite this way, but usually you can kind of sense when the season's going to end. But because of the way game two played out, I really felt like I hit a brick wall. And, you know, for a couple of days, it was just the exhaustion of, you know, that final month and a half and all the travel and all the hustle and all that it caught up with me. And then it was just kind of like, I had this feeling like I'm supposed to be doing something. Like, why <laughs> yeah. am I not doing it? And then there was like, there's no game to cover. So it was a little disorienting for me for a couple of days to be so out of routine because I, I really expected to the Blue Jays to get to Houston. And uh, obviously that didn't happen. And we adjusted accordingly at this point. Yeah, exactly. Even watching that Mariners Astros series, you kind of like, imagining you know what the alternate universe would be of course with the blue jays were in uh, in houston and and of course instead it's like rapidly canceling all the marriott reservations in in <laughs> one go so it ends up being a very very different type of of week and i guess we did get a little bit of baseball news it might be stretching it um since uh, our last at the letters episode which arden and i recorded last week but we've since learned a little bit about George Springer. We've since learned a little bit about John Schneider and his future with this team. So let's let's start there. I, I guess, first of all, with Springer shy, I mean, you look at what we learned uh, on, on that front that he did uh, sustain a concussion, also dealing with, of course, the elbow issue that we now know is a bone spur in his elbow, and he might have some further looks at that, maybe a procedure in, in store for Springer at some point this winter. But what do you make of, of that news that we got on the Springer front and what this means for him going forward? Well, I guess there's sort of the, the two prongs, right? There was the injury from the Game 2 collision with Bo Bichette, which uh, was a shoulder sprain as well as uh, as that concussion. And it really just underlines how frightening and dangerous an incident that was. But there's also, it's really instructive in terms of just how dedicated and how much Bo Bichette and George Springer were to that play and to the game and to try and do everything within their power to have a victory there. So it's two guys who play incredibly hard. It's just that such a freak play that you could run it a hundred more times and it wouldn't happen the same way again. Uh, it's just really unfortunate that, you know, George Springer had to suffer the those two injuries there, and obviously lucky that it's not anything uh, worse than that. So obviously, wish him a speedy recovery from that concussion, and uh, that he doesn't have to sustain any uh, sort of dark nights uh, as sometimes you can with extreme concussions. Uh, as far as the elbow, I thought that was you know that had been floating around and just had never really been confirmed but it just provided a little bit of clarity in terms of what was going on there and you know bone spurs can be super uncomfortable if you you know they create tugs and pains and it would really explain what we'd seen over a couple months from springer that in, when he was swinging uh, or sliding into a base or making a play in the field uh, everything started to make sense so if there is a procedure, it doesn't sound like it would be very significant. It's nothing that would prevent him from being ready to go well before spring training. So in that regard, that's a, that's a good thing for, for George Springer and the Blue Jays. And again, just, just after so many months of speculating about it and writing about it, reporting on it, it was just nice to, to get a little bit of clarity on it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they could have told us that in August. I don't think it would have necessarily changed a ton. Clearly, anyone who was playing against George Springer knew that his elbow wasn't at full health anyway. So, I mean, I'm not sure right. that you gain a ton in that situation. But I agree with you. It is good to have that pinned down. And for anyone who's who's listening, I mean, if you see a headline or see a tweet in 
three weeks time or in, in a you know six weeks time George Springer had a procedure on his elbow that's good news that's something that would help him moving forward so there's elbow surgery like Tommy John there's elbow surgery like having a bone spur removed and if that's the case then that certainly wouldn't be alarming but you know you look at the season total for Springer I mean 133 games 583 plate appearances like if you're the Jays you kind of have to be happy with what you got out of him. George with a drive to deep center and gives the Blue Jays the early lead. Number 24 on the season for Springer as he leads it off here in the bottom of the first. Talk about big players rising to the occasion in big games. George Springer's done it throughout his whole career. Right. Let's remember that he was an all-star selection as well, voted by his peers. So it was a really nice season. It wasn't a season where he was fully himself, though. And so I think you can look at it two ways, right? It's one, he found ways to stay on the field for the vast majority of the season. And that you've got to be happy with because obviously the more he plays, the better off your team is going to be and the more return that you're getting on your dollar. On the flip side, I think what the Blue Jays would hope to do is to be able to get that many games of Springer, but closer to 100% of himself and not him fighting through physical ailments and not being able to do everything that he normally does. And so I think in the first half of the season, we definitely saw the, the more consistent version of Springer. You think about early in the season when the Jays were having trouble scoring runs and he was one of the, their consistent threats uh, during that time. And as the season wore on, there were points where he was just in a lot of difficulty and he wasn't able to swing and, and be the type of uh, hitter that he usually is. Uh, he still found ways to be a strong defender or a strong base runner, but it was a reduced version of himself that was there for significant periods of time. You think about the period of break where the Blue Jesus rested him for a while just to let him maybe try to heal up a little bit so they could ride him a little bit harder down the road. So I think what the Blue Jays want to do an ideally uh, an ideal scenario is just have him closer to that 100% version of himself over a longer period. And that obviously will make a bigger difference for this team. But that's something that's probably going to be harder and harder for, for Springer to do as he gets older. Yeah, probably not going to get easier. I mean, even for 2023, like you played 133 this year. If you could lock in, if you're the Jays, if, if you're Ross Atkins and you can lock in 125, do you do that? 125 where he's closer to 100 percent or 125 where 50 percent of that he's at 70 or 75 percent you know what i mean let's like yeah. i would i would take 90 or 100 games of george springer at 80 percent or 80 90 percent versus 125 of him at 70 you know what i mean yeah it's a tricky one and i think you know obviously there's no there's no box for Ross Atkins to tick on that front. They just have to play it week by week and, and hope that it works out. Um, but, right. you know, certainly we have a little bit more more clarity there on Springer after a solid season. And I guess one area where we, we don't have that same clarity is, is with the manager and with John Schneider. And so I want to pick your brain here, Shai, because, you know, this is a pretty crucial situation for the Blue Jays. The manager is one of the most important people in the organization from from day to day and really hour to hour. We saw in game two of the playoffs, those decisions are massively significant when your season's on the line. Not putting that on John Schneider, but certainly, uh, you know, the manager is a very trusted voice. So at this point, John Schneider is seemingly the front runner. He is the only known candidate for the job. Ross Atkins, without saying that John Schneider will be back, certainly led us to believe that he is the leading candidate to return. But in the meantime, the Blue Jays are going through their process. Now, that's a word we've heard a lot. It's a word that might frustrate some fans, some listeners. (laughs) And Shai, I think you're probably the perfect person to kind of pull back the curtain here. So when Ross Atkins says process, in this case, what do you think that means? It is a really interesting case, and I wonder if the Blue Jays should maybe get process put into the logo somewhere, uh, <laughs> given how important it is to, to the franchise. You know, we kid, but let's start here. I do think that the Blue Jays, the way the situation played out, it was essentially the middle of the season, and 
in comes John Schneider, and there really isn't a lot of time for him and Ross Atkins to kind of sit down and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is our long-term business. It's just, hey, let's get this ship righted. Let's get this team on track. Let's get to the playoffs. And it's just a sprint through what was a very tough schedule. So they didn't really have an opportunity to sit down and say, hey, this is how we see things long-term. This is how I would do the job. Uh, Obviously, there was a sense of what John Schneider brings because he'd been in the organization so long and then he'd worked in a number of different roles with the the big league club until he took over as bench coach for Charlie Montoyo. So maybe there was a bit of a sneak preview, but essentially everything got thrown together and it had to work because there was no other alternative. Mm -hmm. And so you get to the off season, you can take a bit of a breath and you can think about things. It's like, do we see eye to eye on everything? How do you want to approach different situations? How do you think about these types of things? What's your vision for the coaching staff? What is your vision for the roster? Is there wide-scale alignment beyond making this work for two and a half months? And so from that vantage point, I can understand taking a little bit of time, right? But the thing that I haven't been able to wrap my mind around is given all that happened, the pressure, the stakes, like shouldn't Ross already know what John Schneider brings to the table and how it's going to work? Like, does he want a dramatically different version of John Schneider? Maybe there's just concern that maybe Schneider will be a little bit different under different circumstances or whatever the case may be. It just strikes me a little bit odd, right? It kind of feels like you've been living with with a partner for a long period of time you're trying to decide whether you're going to get married and just before you're about to get married you say you know what i just want to date a little bit beforehand just to make sure right Right? something about that just doesn't sit right to me and we're not privy to whatever private conversations that have taken place between ross atkins and john schneider maybe this is all just a hey, we just have to run through this. You're our guy. Don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. This is just the way we do things. But there's something about it that just, you know, I mean, like the Philadelphia Phillies, they, they weren't guessing with Rob Thompson, right? Like they knew, they knew what he was. And they were like, he's our guy. Let's go. They signed him to your extension after having him run the, the team on an interim basis. And for that similar path to not have occurred with John Schneider just raises some questions whether there's some seed of doubt somewhere in the relationship there between the two sides. Yeah. And I will say like, I I think definitely some, some really good points there. I think that, you know, when you're looking at the period of time immediately following the loss of game two and the loss of that opportunity for the blue Jays in the playoffs, it's probably pretty unlikely that you're going to be making really rational and good decisions in that immediate period of time afterwards. And so I think Theo Epstein has said this. I, I th- I'm sure others have said it as well. But you know, following a big win or a big loss, you want to be pretty cautious about making emotional decisions. You know, Even if you win the World Series, do you necessarily want to bring back every single player on that team? And if you were ousted in very painful fashion, do you want to respond one way or the other too emotionally. So, you know, I understand. And when we spoke to Ross Atkins, it was on Tuesday, uh, the 11th of October. So that was just a couple of days after, still in that period of time where arguably you're in that kind of very emotionally heightened period that you actually want to create a little bit of separation. And just as a quick aside here, Shy, like for me, even my reflections on the season have sort of shifted in that period of time. And, you know, I imagine that that could be the case for people in the organization, too. And, of course, they're trained not to react too, too much. But you're a human being. You can't not react to the way that that game, 8-1, to one, they obviously had to win it. They lost it. They blew it. So, you know, I, I would think that there's some aspect there where if you're looking at this through the how do we make the right decision lens, you want to take a step back and you want to at least give yourself a few days or a week. But as we record this now on October the 18th, they've had a week, they've had 10 days. So why not now? You know, like at this point, I'm not necessarily seeing and I I imagine some of our listeners are thinking, oh, Terry Francona this or Bud Black that or maybe they have someone else in mind. To me, I think John Schneider would be a better choice than those people for the job. But 
that's one person's opinion and there's a lot of variables that go into this whole thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly that you don't want to do anything rash in the wake of the emotions of game two. But for me, it was the two and a half months before that, that should have already made the decision. And why, I guess that I just can't, I'm stuck on, why wasn't the decision already made in those two and a half months, yeah. right? And you saw the same things that I saw and you had the same conversations that I had where you, you, know, you saw the changes in the way the team was playing. You saw the increased focus on attention to detail. You saw John Schneider getting after Vlad when some of the base running was unacceptable. You saw all these different elements, they, all the things that you were like thought was maybe undermining the club at different points and he was getting after it. And then you, you extrapolate that over the course of the season, the relationship with players, his knowledge of the farm system. You know, I, I think back to the description that Ross Atkins gave us when they started the managerial search that le- that ended with uh, Charlie Montoya getting the job. Mm-hmm. When he talked about someone who's going to be a leader for the entire organization uh, and someone who's going to be impacting people at multiple levels, it really seems like John Schneider is checking all that. Yeah, And so the fact that they're not a hundred percent certain after the regular season ended. I don't know what did something happen in the postseason that, you know, led them to have extra doubt. Was this just the plan all along? Maybe it just, again, I just keep getting stuck on like, you didn't just have an interview with John Schneider. You had an extended preview of what him managing the team would look like. Yeah. Right. So if you still, feel the need to run through a process after that, it's hard not to make the logical leap that something was lacking or that you saw something that you wanted more of or less of or whatever the case is. So that's the the thing that I keep getting stuck on that, you know, if everything was right, you wouldn't be jumping into this and anyone else you hire, you would not have that two and a half month sample of work, right? You would not clearly know what you're getting into. So you know, for all those reasons, there's just something about this that, you know, maybe they do have someone that they're hoping to see. And, you know, I would think that any GM should be doing this, should have a a running list of potential candidates that they'd want to talk to for a job. You know, maybe this is just an opportunity for the Blue Jays to data mine other organizations and trying to talk to some different people the way they very much did during the Charlie Montoya search. Uh, It could be any number of different things. So I'm hesitant to sort of draw too many conclusions from this. I just think that it's a it's a really important question, the one that we don't have a ton of clarity on. Well, and, and look, I mean, if you're John Schneider in this position, I mean, there are a lot of other teams out there with managerial openings. Like if the Kansas City Royals call, you're not under contract as a manager. If the Miami Marlins call, I mean, what's to stop you in that situation or the White Sox or obviously the Jays are the job. And John Schneider has said this on the record many times this is a dream job for him he's clearly interested in it it's a great fit for him as far as where he's he's come in in his career and and where he'd like to go from here so you know the the marlins job is not going to be as appealing to him as the blue jays job but at a certain point you know you wonder if you start looking around a little bit more i do think that they land on john schneider in the end i also think if they so much as formally interview someone they've messed up you know because at that point it's it's open season and you've indicated to your players to your staff um, to your fans that you don't have full confidence because at this point there's still the reading there's still the possible reading or scenario that hey look they're 99% sure about John Schneider they just need to have some conversations with him behind the scenes that takes a little bit of time they need to hammer out the details and the terms that takes a little bit of time and they went from 98% to 100% and boom he's back and that to me is the most charitable and possibly the most likely reading of what's happening here but if you start getting to the point that like oh you know Terry Francona is spotted at a, at a Toronto restaurant with Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins you're doing something wrong at that point yeah. And, and it, it very much could be haggling over contract details, right? Sure. Is it three or four years? Is it, uh, well, what's the salary? And it could very much just be that, or it could be even John Schneider 
exploring his options uh, as would be well within his right, as you suggested. So I, that's why I'm hesitant to draw conclusions. It just, when something seems obvious and something seems like it should happen and it doesn't happen right away, it always just, it plants a seed of doubt. And it's like, well, why, when something should be done and it isn't, it just, it begs the question, why? And sometimes there's a reason that it, that goes beyond sort of the surface level explanations. In my mind, you don't have to offer a percentage here because I'm putting you on the spot. I'm going to I'm gonna offer a percentage here. In my mind, I think it's 98% that John Schneider's back. Yeah, I mean, I would think it's in that range. I, I might say 90 or 95%. Uh, but again, I just, when you're, when you open the door to looking at other possibilities, then, you know, Ross didn't rule that out when I asked him that question. I mean, he, he kind of just dodged it and didn't really mm-hmm. answer it, but you know, it would have been really easy to rule that out. Sure. And, uh, of course, if you're haggling over money with somebody, well, you're yeah. giving away all your leverage if you, if you see that. So I understand some of the back and forth with this, but Again, it's just when you're opening up a process, you know, as much as you want to steer it, sometimes sometimes it just plays out maybe a little bit differently than you've gamed out. For sure. All right. Well, we will, we will see where things go with John Schneider. We have a lot more to get to here on At The Letters. And on the other side of this break, we will return with Shai Beat. Welcome back to At The Letters, and it is time now for Major League Beer for Major League Baseball, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Shy, we've already seen the playoffs expand this year. Big field of, of teams, including, of course, the Toronto Blue Jays. And of course, you know, with that, you see some of these great regular season teams get eliminated very quickly. We've seen the Dodgers get bounced. The defending champions from Atlanta are gone. And... That's a pretty interesting way to see the playoffs get off to to their start here in 2022. As you look at this, is there a way to make sure that the regular season is more meaningful, counts for more, has some greater significance in the baseball landscape, do you think? Well, it starts with our perceptions, right? The way we've grown up to everything is built around the championship and all that matters is the championship. And the regular season really matters in baseball. And if we're going to get wacky and, you know, let's just go off the wall here. You know, I look at the way the European soccer leagues function, right? Where you're always trying to win your league. And then you've got the top few teams in your league end up in the Champions Cup. And that's a secondary tournament. And it almost feels like in some ways as it gets bigger that the playoffs are essentially a separate tournament and that you build a team to win the regular season. And then what happens in the playoffs is subject to a ton of randomness. So why don't we get rid of divisions? And I've long been, this has long been a a passion of mine, a dream that we don't have divisions anymore because I really hated the unbalanced schedule. So I'm, I'm very happy that at least we're going to a more balanced schedule, but have two 15-team leagues, and then the winner of each league gets a trophy, and then a handful of teams, we can stick with the current six in each league, say, they advance to the playoffs, and that's a separate tournament. And then you've got, you win your league, and then you pull off the double where you win the World Series as well. And that creates a bit more, maybe a bit of incentive or a little bit of, motivation to try and win in the regular season in a way and have people value it uh, in a way that is not currently. So I know it's far-fetched. I'm very little doubt that it has much of a chance of happening because I can't I can't imagine it. But I, I just think the way we think about the regular season maybe needs to change. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. And, and you know, especially as we're moving now to a slate of, of games and, and structures where it's not as heavily focused within in any individual division now the idea of divisions i guess there's the regional aspect um but the idea of a single league is probably more palatable i think the the challenge here would be you know year one 
you know, the, the Dodgers clinched the National League Cup, you know, and they, they have this trophy. Like, are the players really excited about that? Like, is Trey Turner, like, holding it above his head and, you know, doing, like, a, a big celebration? Um, or does that take, like, decades maybe for that to mean something? Maybe, but look, I think it's all in how you set things up, right? Because everybody values winning the division, Right. And even if you're, if you win the AL Central, which was kind of like you win the division by default, right? Or the National League Central for that matter, right? It's not like those, those teams had to face competition. Like you win, uh, the, the, especially this year, the American League East or the National League East. Well, you've done something, right? I think if you put up everyone within the league and everyone's playing a balanced schedule and it's a more true representation of, which team had the best record over the collective group and then that team is rewarded to me that would be an incentive and that would be an accomplishment and something to certainly be celebrated so i i may i'm probably on an island or a bit of an (laughs) island on that idea but i do think that is a way to say hey look the regular season means something and the postseason this is a completely separate thing and that also means something too but the way that right now, I just didn't like a lot of the discussion around, you know, the, the Dodgers and Atlanta, where it's like, your season is a failure because you didn't win the World Series. No, I mean, both teams still won in excess of 100 games, right? Same thing with the Mets. The like, Mets, that's yeah. not a bad season, right? Yeah. You, you were in a, a small sample size tournament, and you happen to not have a good series. That's all that is. And to try and extrapolate more from that, to me, I think is a bit unfair. Right. I guess, like, to me, the argument against the Davidi Cup, as I will now call it, would be that (laughs) it it would basically be, you know, these teams know what the challenge is going into the season, right? So the Dodgers know that the end goal is not winning 111 games. And good for them. It's so impressive that they did that. It's historic. I mean, they're such a good team, such a good franchise. But Going into the season, their goal is to win the World Series. So they need to rest players accordingly. They need to set their players up on pitching schedules accordingly. They need to target players at the trade deadline and in free agency accordingly. Because they could do nothing this offseason, let Trey Turner walk, non-tender Cody Bellinger, and still probably win 95 games because they've set themselves up so well to this point. So it's almost, you know, in any individual season, what the Dodgers need to do now is maximize their chances not of reaching the playoffs and being one of those top six teams in the National League, but of making it further and of finding that secret sauce such as it is to be able to advance in the postseason. The thing is, it's because it's small sample, there's just there's always going to be elements of randomness that you cannot account for. And I'm sure that somebody smarter, or many people smarter than me are working on this day and night, especially if you're a major league baseball team that's a consistent contender that's trying to crack this. But what did the playoffs tell you time and again, right? That anything can happen there. What you do in the regular season can be negated by one week or half a week or whatever the case may be. I mean, think about the 116 win Seattle Mariners, right? And they get bounced. They don't, they don't even make it to the world series. Like the best team or the team with the best record, doesn't always win the World Series. And so yeah. I, ju- I just think they're two different animals. And that if we just put everything on just the World Series championship and say and we're, we're devaluing what being the best team over 162 really is. And if we separate them and just really start to treat them as separate things, because they are, they are separate. And as much as like the goal should be to win a world series championship, hundred percent, but there are just too many things you can't control for once you get to that point. Whereas, you know, what the Dodgers do year in, year out better than everyone else is create a ton of surplus on their roster, have an unmatched level of depth, utilize their 40 man roster better than, pretty much everybody else in baseball. And that that allows them to win that many games on a consistent basis. Uh, they've, they've done, they've made big moves at the deadline to try and win World Series, whether it was acquiring you Darvish or Max Scherzer or Manny Machado, whatever it was. You know, it's just those moves don't always work out for whatever reason. And part of that is 
you know, a, a best of five sample or a best of seven sample is not representative of what a group does over 162 games. I mean, there is there is no secret sauce. I really don't think that there is one. And, uh, you know, certainly there are elements that the great teams all share. I mean, to be a to be a great baseball team, you have to hit home runs in the playoffs. You have to have good defense, most likely, although the Phillies are probably pushing that. Um, you have to have really good pitching, um, the, you know, control the strike zone, really good fastballs from your pitchers, hitters who can hit velocity. All those things are extremely helpful. Now, can you do without any one of those aspects? I think you probably can. You know, you could probably get by with a so-so bullpen. 2019 Nationals are an example of that because they're, Starting pitchers basically stepped up. So I would never say that the 2022 Blue Jays could not have made it despite some of the flaws in their bullpen. They probably could have. It just would have required better production from Vlad and from Bo and from, you know, any hitter, name a hitter on that team except for Teoscar. You you probably needed more from them to be able to advance. Crushed to left field and into the second game. No doubt about it. He hit it hard. You can hear how square he hit it. So, you know, I think all those things piece together to create teams that do do well in the playoffs. And health, of course, is one of those as well, which is really hard to predict and account for. Um, So that's where the depth of the 40-man comes in. But, you know, look, in baseball, we've seen teams and organizations and, and individuals come up with ways to throw harder consistently to hit the ball harder consistently. There's, there are secret sauces for those things. There are proven methods for those things. But there, I don't think there is one for October. I think you just have to build the best possible team and then hope for the best and accept that sometimes the best teams are going to be knocked out. And that might be you some years. Right. And, and sometimes a few players get hot and it's enough to carry. And the Atlanta last year is the perfect example, right? There is no objective way you can tell me the 2021 Braves are better than the 2022 club. Yep. Right. And the fact that they ended up with a a world series in one year with the, with the lesser team and a first round exit with the better club just really underlines how the, how the randomness plays out because uh, in 2021, they were essentially carried by a small handful of players, right? Jock Peterson, getting hot, Soler getting hot, Rosario Rosario. getting hot, their pitching staff doing just enough. They didn't have the depth of arms that they had this season. And to me, that just underlines the crapshoot element of it. And we want, ideally, our sports to crown what we consider a, a legitimate champion, right? But in a, a tournament that is so prone to chaos... I don't know that that's fair. It's really, you have the best team over 162 games, and then you have the best team in October. And that's really the way that I've started looking at the postseason. So so you know hockey better than me. In hockey, do they is it the President's Trophy? Is that a thing? It is. Nobody really cares about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is like one of hockey's silly things, right? Where... only the Stanley Cup matters and for years if you know the teams that won the conference final you win your conference you get a trophy too and like the tradition was that you don't touch that because it means like you don't you're you it's a lesser trophy and you're not interested in in trophies that aren't the Stanley Cup and it's just kind of like why why not celebrate every achievement that you have right if you have the if you win the best record in the regular season that's an accomplishment and that should be celebrated and that should be meaningful. You win a conference, then you should celebrate that. And that's your trophy. You earned it. And I don't understand why that means that you somehow don't want the Stanley cup or are supposed to curse your chances of winning the Stanley cup or whatever stupid uh, story that everybody was telling themselves for, for decades. But ultimately it just comes down to the way that we look at things. Right. Yeah. We've always looked at things. The Stanley Cup is the be all end all. You know, the, the commissioner's trophy in, in baseball, that's the be all end all. And that regular season, it means something. Like, and, and it provides to, uh, like, uh, to baseball fans, like the, the entertainment the regular season provides for you, 
the enjoyment that it gives you, the, yeah, the ups and downs that you live through, and to, to end up with the, the best record or to win a division or even a, a, a wild card spot under the current format, like that's something that should be celebrated and should be enjoyed. And it shouldn't just be one is meaningless without the other. It could be viewed as incomplete, but I don't feel like we respect and appreciate the the regular seasons enough. Well, I think that's I think that's pretty fair. And you know, there is a there's obviously many connections to the Blue Jays on that front too, because you know, when I look back 2015 when they won the division that stands out in a way that 16 20 and even 22 do not because they actually won it and then more importantly moving forward man there's a way to avoid getting bounced in the wild card series right don't play it get the buy you know and so the jays now you know i've said this at various points before um but the yankees are vulnerable when aaron judge hits free agency you know, does he end up with the Giants? I think most likely he's back with the Yankees, but you don't know. And if he's back with the Yankees, the rest of their team is still getting older. And there's vulnerability there for sure. So I see no reason that the Blue Jays shouldn't be challenging for the American League East going into 2023. So of course, the question is, how do they get there? So I've kept you long enough here, Shy. I don't want to keep, <laughs> keep too much of your time, um, both uh, before and, and during this podcast here. But, um, you know, what... You know, broadly speaking, as we head toward hot stove season, we'll have months and months to get into all of this. And of course, we will. But broadly speaking, when you look at avenues for improvement for the Toronto Blue Jays, it's a very good team. They obviously need to make some moves and get better. But what are you looking at? All right. So I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with bullpen. I'm not just saying this because of what happened in game two, because we've been saying this for a long time, really since 2021, maybe even since 2020, where yeah. you know they somehow got a little bit lucky and were able to to ride the uh, best 60 games that Rafael Dolis is ever going to have in the majors oh, yeah. uh, to a lot of leverage outs. Their bullpen, and and credit to to the guys for the, for the job that they did and put up some nice seasons, but there's just simply a gap between them and the elite bullpens. And elite bullpens have been gotten in those playoffs. So there's no certainly no guarantee, but you look at what Cleveland can do coming out of the bullpen, for instance, and you know they're, they're just can just shut a game down. You know the Astros can shut a game down, and the Blue Jays can close out games, but I don't know that they can. They're quite as locked down as some of those other groups, and so moving towards that, and how do you do it? Is there are there some internal pieces that end up factoring? Is it going to be does Nate Pearson finally emerge and become, you know, uh, a dominant one to two inning guy is Julian Merriweather. Does he figure it out? And does he become a piece? Does Hagen Danner come out of AFL and stay healthy and use his, you know, high 90 stuff. And does he become a piece? What can you do externally to address them? That, that to me is the starting point. And then, because they really, can't finish this and i know that there's a lot of thought that you know relievers come from everywhere and uh, you, you can't it's it's a bad place to invest money and all that stuff but it's also as the, the past couple of years have shown a bad place to not invest so yeah. that that to me is is job one and then obviously tied into that is what are you doing with your rotation so can you can you bring back Ross Stripling or do you have to backfill for him? I'd imagine that his market is going to be very robust because he's somebody that basically every team that needs a starting pitcher can afford and he can pitch for any class of team, be it an elite contender or a team on the up looking to take the next step. So yeah. I, I think that he, he's going to have a lot of options to choose from. So how do you backfill if he ends up leaving and then what are you doing for that fifth spot? My guess, my initial guess, and I don't know this, but I think that you sign a, a real four if you if you don't get Stripling back, and mm -hmm. then you bring in somebody else to compete for five with Mitch White and Yusei Kikuchi. Yeah. So you have some options there, and then that that gives you some some fallback depth in case something happens. So yeah. th those would be the first order of business, and then you know beyond that, I think you're looking to 
try and change up the mix in your outfield? Can you get a left-handed hitter into the mix, ideally a, a left-handed or switch-hitting center fielder that would allow George Springer to play in right field a little bit more and get back to the earlier conversation, maybe help keep him on the field uh, at a healthier pace for longer over the course of the year? Uh, and, you know, I think those are the major pieces in terms of roster changes. And then once all that's settled, you, you, lock, you bear down a little bit and see, can you extend? Can you extend? Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, and Alec Manoa. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. It's it's simultaneously like a busy off season with a lot to do, but also like what a great spot for a team to be in. And it's easier to say now, like nine days after their bounce, but like this team should be really good next year. There's absolutely no reason they can't be contending. So they're in a good spot. They have some work to do. Uh, can I bounce a few rapid fire questions off you, Shy, before we let you go? Yeah, sure, no problem. Okay, so along those lines, you know, you mentioned Stripling, and I do agree with you, by the way, that, um, you know, they kind of need a number four there. Do you see them, this is kind of connected to that, do you see the Jays potentially going, well, let's start with Stripling. Do you see the Jays qualifying Stripling? I don't. And the reason that I don't see them qualifying him is Ross Stripling, one, he might take it. Uh, because it's a strong number for one year, and that even if he falls back, he can probably make up the gap even off a down year beyond that. And the Blue Jays are in a situation where they're not having a lot of money come off the books. So that would be roughly a 15 to $16 million hit or increase year over year on stripling salary. And to bump him to that extreme would just tie your hands in, in so many other areas. So I would I would think that they they won't for that reason. I agree. I don't think they will. Now, for a starting pitcher in that number four slot, do you see them going more than two years? Potentially, right? I, I, what they did with Yusei Kikuchi is they were hoping to plug that hole and True. essentially have Kikuchi as their number four for the next couple of years. It just didn't work out. And it's not to say that it won't, because I'm probably on an island on this too, but I still see enough potential there that to think that if he figures out a couple things and locks them down, it could still work. Like the, the, the raw stuff to me is just so intriguing. Um, I, I don't, I don't think it's it's a it's a total sunk cost yet, but maybe I'm just off my rocker on that one. But they have to, or ideally, you do plug someone in there. And then you've got some stability behind Manoa, Gosman, and Barrios for a couple of years. And you've got time to wait for a Ricky Tiedemann to emerge, or a Hayden Younger to emerge, a Semro Bears to emerge, someone to, to come up from your farm system and jump into the rotation and be a factor. You know, Maybe, maybe Thomas Hatch it has a, a good reset this offseason and he turns into something. You know, can, can Bowden Francis, who... Right. Again, but (laughs) you know, I mean, these guys are one year removed from being thought of as the the next level of depth, you know, Hatch, K, Francis, just as much as they collapse, they could rebound potentially too. So um, I think all those things, you ideally have another piece and then, then you've got Kikuchi and you have White and you have all these guys fighting for the mix and you have options. And what the Blue Jays didn't have this year was options. And that really showed up in September where, you know, you had the bullpen have to throw have the pitch three games in span of 14 days, which when you're trying to win a division or contend for the postseason spot or next year, win a division, very suboptimal. Yeah, I do get the Barrios optimism. I am not quite there with the with the Yusei Kikuchi optimism. Right I, I didn't now. say optimism. I yeah. just said I see the potential. I'm not saying right. I wouldn't bet money on it happening. Right. But yeah. uh, but like I don't think that it's a hundred percent guarantee that that's that's a terrible contract. I still think there's a possibility it turns it around. But but Kikuchi's got to get there. And like that the stuff like you can't replicate that stuff, right? You know. Yeah. Think about how frustrated the New York Mets were with Steven Matz when they ended up trading him to the Jays. And then he had a great rebound with the Jays and the Cardinals gave him a $44 million over four years, right? Yeah. Like this, this stuff happens. Like the Diamondbacks were throwing up their hands up with Robbie Ray. And then he wins a Cy Young with the Jays and 
is uh, $115 million from the Mariners. Like these things are not completely far-fetched. And yeah. you know, the, the, when the stuff is there, you know, I remember someone always saying to me years ago, uh, saying like, what you would always bet on talent in this game, yeah. right? And, you know, when there's talent there, you know, you keep giving it opportunities as long as you can. For sure. Okay, two more real quick ones for you. Number one, agree or disagree, the central question for the Blue Jays this offseason is whether they trade one of their young catchers. Ooh, central question. In some ways, yes, because that is a way to potentially address their outfield situation, to, to potentially a way to address their pitching. I, I'm not in the camp where I feel like they have to trade a catcher. I feel like they could very much go into next season with all three guys and it wouldn't be the worst outcome. But if you're looking to maximize the value, this is probably the offseason to make that move. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, to me, that's the central question for this team. And they don't have to, but I'll be very curious to see if they do. Last one, Shohei Otani. He is one year away from free agency. The people want to know, Shy. To me, and I'll, I'll tip my hand here before I let you answer, but to me, it does not feel like the most Mark Shapiro move to trade for a player on the brink of free agency. As historic as Shohei Otani is, and he's obviously amazing, and I obviously selfishly hope they give up the farm and do it because that would be so fun to watch. But do you see any realistic possibility of those conversations picking up to the point that there's real traction? So if we were to put odds on it, I would probably say it's two percent. Yeah, right. Like seems fair. It, it's you're right about it not being a very Mark Shapiro Blue Jays move. I also feel like the amount that it would take to pry him is he's not a traditional rental, right? It's like essentially you're buying two rentals. Yep, because you're getting an elite hitter and you're getting an elite pitcher so it's not like okay this is what it cost to get uh max scherzer at the deadline it's like it's what it cost to get both max scherzer and i'm blanking on a uh, significant position player that's moved in recent deadlines but 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 manny machado so it's like it's it's kind of like a dual package like that so you're giving up like six uber prospects how do you value that? And as much as it's been amazing to watch Shohei Otani do what he did or do what he's done, is he going to be able to do it a third year in a row? I mean, we don't know. All this stuff is unprecedented. So to bake in the, the a fair value and then bake in the risk and knowing that it might just be for one season, that to me seems like far more risk than the Blue Jays usually accept. And so I'm sure there's a scenario out there where it makes sense for the Blue Jays. I'm not sure that same scenario would make sense for the Angels. Right. I mean, the good news about that is if you do trade for Shohei Otani, you essentially have a year to sell him on Toronto and the Blue Jays organization before you bid for him in free agency, which of course they should be doing 12 months from now. So we'll see where all that leads. I agree there are tons of questions there, but yeah, I mean... Likely Judge Otani, probably not coming to the Toronto Blue Jays, but uh, we can we can at least imagine those scenarios for for now. Look, uh, there there is not a single (laughs) nobody in their right mind would not want Shohei Otani on their team, right? Like it would be amazing to cover, as you said, selfishly. It would be just so much fun to watch that on a daily basis. At, At the same time, it just this doesn't seem like a Blue Jays team that has the prospect capital to be able to do that and then sustain a competitive window over the long term. I don't think that right now their farm system isn't overflowing, that they have all this surplus talent that they can just pull off these kind of deals. They have to be a little bit more measured, I feel like, when they're making these deals and getting more control back. And so, you know, I think that that's one one key factor. And the other one, I, I I, I would probably guess that he's not moving at all yeah. and that the Angels play out the season, try to put a better club around them, and then hope to keep them longer term. But there are a lot of issues in Anaheim that are far 
deeper than that? Or are they selling the team? Are they getting that stadium project off? Are they doing all those pieces? You know, how does Shohei Otani fit within that? The ownership that decides that may not be in place right now. That's right. And and the ownership question is huge. If you're considering selling the team, which the Angels are, you're probably not going to trade your historic best player when that sale is on the brink of happening. So chances are it takes a while. Um, maybe at that point, the Jays fans have to kind of filter down to the next exciting name on the list, whether that's a, you know, Justin Verlander or is it, you know, Chris Bassett for that number four spot? Who knows where the offseason may lead? And also, if the regular season meant more, maybe the Jays would go all in for Shohei Otani. <laughs> so we got to get that uh, get that on the books as well. Shy, thanks so much for your time, uh, as always, and uh, today on At The Letters. A pleasure, Ben. Talk soon. Sounds good. This has been At The Letters, brought to you by... Miller Light, the original light beer. We will be back soon uh, next week, hoping to have Arden Swelling back. He's on the road this week doing some very good playoff coverage for us on Sportsnet. So he was not able to make this week's episode, but he will be back soon. We will be back to discuss the latest with the Blue Jays at that point. And in the meantime, thanks to you for listening. Thanks as well to our producers, Christian Ryan and Luis Ramirez. We will talk to you soon on At The Letters. 